Welcome to Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. Neighboring rights. That has something to do with performance royalties. Some places collect neighboring rights and some don't. Neighboring rights has something to do with master recordings, right? Neighboring rights is performance royalties that are collected for the master recording. Neighboring rights, does that mean the performance royalties you can collect from neighboring countries? It's become a $2.4 billion business. Neighboring rights refer to the legal right to perform or broadcast recorded music in public, mostly outside of the United States. Neighboring rights are similar to the public performance rights associated with musical compositions, songs, but they are paid to recording owners, usually record labels and performing artists, rather than to songwriters and publishers, and collected on their behalf by other organizations besides the performing rights organizations like ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC in the United States, which collect and distribute public performance income for songwriters and publishers. In the streaming age, neighboring rights have great potential as far as revenues earned overseas, but with each country comes a different challenge in reporting and collecting. To help unpack neighboring rights, we talked with Mary Megan Peer, the CEO of Peer Music, and Vic Zaria, Chief Operating Officer of Concord Music. Peer Music was founded over 90 years ago by renowned music visionary Ralph S. Peer and is the largest independent music publisher in the world with 38 offices in 31 countries and owns or administers over a million music copyrights. To kick off the discussion, I asked Mary Megan, what are neighboring rights? So neighboring rights are the performance rights associated with a recording. Most of us are more familiar with a copyright, which is the right associated with a song, i.e. the music and lyrics. Neighboring rights are held by artists and labels, whereas copyrights are held by the songwriters and publishers. Why is it called neighboring rights? My understanding is that neighboring rights got their name from being neighbors with publishing rights because they're similar, but not living in the same house. So they are located close to each other in the law, but it doesn't have anything to do with licensing underlying rights. It has to do with licensing the rights of the sound recording, and it's for a particular use. And it's not about territory? That is true. And one thing that's different between copyrights and neighboring rights is that what rights are licensed in each of those scenarios vary by country for neighboring rights, whereas copyrights generally similar uses around the world carry a right that needs to be paid with it. Can you talk about the exceptions in neighboring rights licensing, specifically the public performance of the sound recording that we have here in the United States? Of course. So as I just mentioned, neighboring rights statutes vary greatly by country. This is partially because the legislation surrounding neighboring rights is relatively new. Generally, in countries which sign the Rome Convention, sound recordings carry a neighboring right for radio and television broadcast and general licensing, which is what we use the words we use in the U.S. to describe music that's played in bars, restaurants, stores, and hotels. However, the U.S. was not a signatory to the Rome Convention, so those neighboring rights don't exist in the U.S. So the masters that are played in the U.S. do not carry a right for those mediums. In the U.S., neighboring rights are actually only legally collected for usages on satellite radio, in other words, Sirius XM, and non-interactive streaming, Pandora being the most important service in that space, and for webcasting. 
What about general licensing? How we refer to public performance and bars and restaurants and gyms and any business that uses music? So in the U.S., that type of general licensing is collected by ASCAP and BMI because the copyright owners are entitled to remuneration for that, but it is not collected by sound exchange or any other society for neighboring rights because that type of usage doesn't carry a neighboring right within the U.S. And yet outside the United States and many territories, that is the case, right? That's true. And it's a very important source of revenue for neighboring rights in a number of countries. How big is broadcast and general licensing revenue from neighboring rights sourced in the territories where that right is collected? So those depend a lot on the country, but I'd say between 70 and 90 percent of all neighboring rights which are collected in a territory. The other area that's important in terms of revenue for neighboring rights, XUS, is private copy. Private copy is part of the price paid when consumers purchase a device which can be used to store recordings. Years ago, this was referred to as a blank tape levy because it was paid when consumers purchased blank cassettes to record onto. Today, it's charged when people purchase phones and other electronic devices which can be used to store music files. Then the other area of income outside of the U.S. is digital, which carries a neighboring right generally for webcasting, catch-up TV, and non-interactive streaming. But since those aren't the majority of digital uses, that's a pretty small chunk of the pie. So if an artist who's from the United States is played on the radio in the U.K., on the BBC, or on commercial radio, does that artist get paid even though there is that neighboring right in the U.K.? for artists who are from the UK? That's an excellent question, and I agree that's where it gets confusing because to look at the answer, we have to consider both the nationality of the artist or the home base of the record label if you're looking at the master side and where the usage took place. In the UK, and quite frankly, many other countries, they've decided that since their performers do not receive a neighboring right for their songs being played on US radio, that they will not pay American performers neighboring rights for their songs being played on radio in the UK. Since American performers also don't receive a neighboring right for their songs being played in the US, many question just this logic. But back to your specific example. Billie Eilish's Bad Guy is played on UK radio, and PPL, which is the UK's equivalent of Sound Exchange, receives money for that play. But Eilish has an American passport. Bad Guy was recorded in the US so they won't pay her. And instead, they allocate that money to her record label and pay the label. I'm not the only one who thinks this is unfair and undercuts what our American performers are entitled to. But then if you want to look at it the other way, a British national performer who's played in the U.S., Ed Sheeran, Adele, Dua Lipa, Elton, many, many these days, they would not get paid for a performance on U.S. radio. But that's because there's no neighboring right attached to that performance, and U.S. performers themselves are not paid by sound exchange for when they're played on U.S. radio either. That seems unfair to me. I, you are not the only one. Is there an organization looking to normalize neighboring rights around the world? Yeah, that is a good question. And honestly, the, the most movement that we've seen on it recently comes from a decision from the European Court of Justice was probably not the type of organization you were thinking of when you asked that question. <laughs> but in 2021, uh, they issued a ruling that was based on a case in Ireland, but it, since it's from the European Court of Justice, it applies throughout Europe. 
And it essentially said that not paying American performers and master owners their European neighboring rights was unfair and mandated that American performers get equal compensation as European performers for their neighboring rights. So far, only the Dutch society has adopted this rule, meaning that American performers have the same rights to revenues from Dutch television, radio, and public performance as Dutch performers. But we do expect other societies in Europe to move towards this. And even before this ruling, there for certain usages in Spain, in Germany, American performers and master owners did get paid. So this is a developing area. Let's hope that gains traction. We were talking earlier about sound exchange. And when we talk about neighboring rights in the U.S., to the extent that we use that terminology at all, really what we're talking about is the collection of money for the use of music on Sirius XM in particular, and what we think of as classic Pandora, the non-interactive radio-like legacy Pandora service. Sound exchange collects and distributes that money. Who do they distribute the money to, and how does it break down? So they pay both performers and labels, and it is essentially broken down 50% for the performer side and 50% for the label side. It's pretty obvious usually who the label is. It's the owner of the, the master. But on the performer side, obviously, there's not only the featured performer, folks whose, whose name is on the, on the work, but they're non-featured performers, usually musicians, sometimes backup vocals, uh, and there may be producers who contributed to the track. So they all share in the performer side collection. What about self-distributed artists? They put their music out there using a digital service like CD Baby, DistroKid, or TuneCore, and it's out there. What happens when that sound recording is played on SiriusXM or Pandora? So as long as it's properly registered at SoundExchange, they would get both the master and the performance monies associated with that they would be assumed to be the label owner. Mary Megan, is there a technology advantage in collecting and distributing neighboring rights? Yes, absolutely. Technology plays a huge role. And, and frankly, I don't think we could be in this business without having developed our own proprietary software in this space. Uh, there's two areas that are really, really important. Uh, the first is having information on the repertoire. Um, and you may think, oh, it's really easy. You can, someone's just going to send you. When a performer signs up, they'll just send you every recording they've been on. Trust me, most performers don't keep that information with every release date in every country at hand. So our technology has APIs with the Apple database, with Discogs, with Jaxta and other sources and pulls in all of the information we can that could possibly be related to a new performer client then we methodically clean that up and use that to register at all of the societies around the world. We're directly affiliated with over 40. And that's the second place that technology is really important. In the publishing world, there's something called the Common Works Registration, CWR, it's often known as. And that essentially means that you can send the same file to ASCAP, to PRS, to SASM, to any of the publishing societies, and that's how you register a new song. In neighboring rights, there is no common format. You have to send a different format for registration to each of the different 40 societies. So having a database that can handle creating each of those registration formats is hugely important. Then the third area, of course, uh, similar to publishing, is tracking the income as it comes in. So having a system that can keep track of what qualifies in Germany compared to what qualifies in Spain 
and point out when things that should carry a neighboring right are not receiving any income is highly important. Is the business growing? It is, absolutely. It's a little bit tough to say because we've only been doing this for a year and a half, um, but even with the pandemic, uh, income is coming in. We've also signed a number of amazing performers in the past year, which are contributing to growth. Megan DeStallion, Billie Eilish, Phineas, now all of those are certainly helping us grow our footprint. And the other thing we've done is because of Pure Music's global network in 31 countries, that has allowed our neighboring rights companies to have direct access to a number of markets, which are relatively closed if you don't have your own company in them. So for the first time, we've been collecting in a number of territories in South America on the neighboring rights side. I asked Vic Zaria why Americans in particular have such a hard time wrapping their heads around the definition of neighboring rights. I think that goes back to the history of terrestrial radio in the U.S. and that there is no performing right on the master side in the U.S. Radio was, you know, not paid, right? With the with the existence of Sirius and Pandora and non-directive radio and changing the technology. Sound exchange was created, and there was a right created, and sound exchange was, was authorized to administer that right. And that started, in, I think, an awareness of this sort of right globally. And that, of course, feeds into the today's desire to create you know, a more terrestrial right. But the lack of that, which exists globally in almost every other country in the world, is probably why Americans are not familiar with this concept. And then there are so many other variable elements to it. You know, the artists, of course, collect directly, the rights holder can collect directly, the territory that the work was created, the concept of private copy levying, which sometimes gets mixed in. There's all the other detailed rights in each and every country that I I think the whole thing becomes a little confusing. Are we right in describing our best platform for U.S.-earned neighboring rights as being collected or collectible by SoundExchange? Well, SoundExchange is currently the platform that collects all of these in the U.S. And I'm biased because I'm on the board of the organization, so I'm predisposed to be very favorable and positive towards it. So I'll start by saying that so everyone knows. But I think they're personally perfectly situated to collect all any of these, should there be more within the United States. The biggest issue for me on neighboring rights is I feel like we as rights holders are getting um, feed to death. I mean, globally, Every country is collecting their own neighboring rights. There can be multiple neighboring rights societies in many countries. And each of those societies has to have an administrative fee to process the data and pay through the rights. And so I can only imagine a performance that occurs in Brazil or the Czech Republic, and not to call those countries out, but as different countries in the United States, you know, where there could be additional fee structures. And who know, each of the societies has different level of technological prowess. And each of the societies has different incentives to pay local versus foreign repertoire. And all of that, to me, creates a situation where, you know, that there's leakage from the system. And so if, if the U.S., I would believe if the U.S. were to have more neighboring rights, they should be administered by SoundExchange simply because they already have a pre-existing database. They already have a, you know, rights processing systems. They have artists and rights holders. So to me, and they're already generally performing at a relatively low administrative state. So it wouldn't make sense to me to add an additional 
organization on top of that when they're already doing the job and I think doing the job at a high level. You'd think there ought to be a competitive advantage in technology in this space. So you would think there would be, and there certainly should be, right? There's no reason that over the long term, companies that have invested in technology won't be able to use their platforms to get substantial advantages. But my personal opinion at this time is that they're all genuinely operating at a similar level. And they're operating at a similar level for some reasons that are beyond their control. So first of all, as I already said, their their partners are the, the local societies in whatever country, and all of those societies have different level of technological prowess. They're up, they're working with many, many, many partners. And the partners may not have their systems together, right? They may not have a great detail of the rights they own. They may not have the appropriate level of metadata for data fixation, country of fixation, performers, nationality. There are many, many different fees that they, that they may or may not have. And lastly, I think that a lot of the challenges that exist in neighboring rights are not, there's matching problems, which is a big problem across the board. But there's also rights ownership problems where people dispute the dates that things are owned and controlled by. What I think we need to do is not only work towards better matching and technology, but improve processes, not only for the neighboring rights players, but for the societies. You know, I'm not certain that in most countries they even accept the data in a standard way. Some do and some don't. The more we move towards data standardization, the less there will be a need for societies to have better technology. But at the same time, I couldn't agree more that there is an opportunity for a player here to leap ahead of the others using technology, frankly, for matching, for disputes resolution, for ingestion. Um, I have had experience with probably many of the different neighboring rights companies that exist. And some of them just have better portals. Some of them have cleaner way of uploading the data. But None of them are markedly like light years ahead of any of the others at this point. Um, you would also think, just steering back on the publishing side, it's an interesting one because in theory, publishers are used to dealing with all of this, right? Multiple writers, multi-territory administrators. I think publishing has just become so challenging in the last decade due to the multitude of metadata, song proliferation, et cetera that they have a lot to work on on their own. So I think they're focused on publishing. Companies are generally focused on publishing. You just referred to the matching problem, which is not so well understood. Can you describe exactly what that is and what the data is that needs to be matched? I love talking about metadata. So obviously, each and every source that plays music could report data in a different way. The song name, the artist involved, the featured artist, the label, the year of release, the country of release. And if any of those, there's probably 25 other pieces of data, the length of time, if any of those things are not consistent, we will have data exceptions. So I'm trying to think of a band on the top of my head now, but if a band, you know, had a song and maybe it has the same name as 27 other songs, great. So I wrote this song X that's mine. But how would you know if the service only provided song name or album name or they only or they spelled it wrong or they put a special character in? So there's just so many different ways I've seen. And then, of course, the more services and the more songs, more complicated. And I don't know the number, but 
I have to imagine there are millions of songs per year coming out now, right? And there are hundreds of services globally, probably thousands of services. So let's just do the math, right? It becomes an exponential problem. Um, that doesn't mean that most of those songs are where the revenue is, but how do you know until you match it? So I think there's a big challenge there. Last I heard was 70,000 new song uploads a day on one of the major services, and that's probably out of date now. So do the math on that, right? So you expect, we expect as a world, every radio station, every digital service globally in every country to have, to know all those 70,000 songs, which I think is an impossible task without a better global technology, global database even. Yeah, and perhaps more operationally integrated across countries. Agree. I think there are people who are working on that. I know there's a project, I think, driven by PPL, where they're trying to create a global source of data, but it's easier said than done. So I think that there'll be hubs, hopefully, like in the publishing space. Maybe one day there'll be an Anglo repertoire hub or a Spanish language hub or a French language hub, or there could be, I could see a myriad of different you know hubs that help create it, help simplify the problem. Are there other ways that the neighboring rights business is growing other than just the number of sound recordings to be managed is growing. Oh, well, the revenues are growing as well. You know, a lot of it is based on advertising revenue or general use revenue. So as business expands, and that's certainly happening, we're seeing that happen in many, many countries where 2020 and 2021 were tough. Obviously, the COVID had an impact on you know people going out to bars, restaurants, clubs, and things like that. And advertising revenue was impacted. But long time. We're just seeing a growth in all of that area. And we're looking for you know new rights to come online, right? In countries, hopefully, fingers crossed, like eventually in the United States. We are also seeing though, to offset, I think my optimism, protectionism. We're seeing countries that have historically not wanting to pay foreign repertoire, look for ways to not do that. And you know I think that's a challenge as well. You know, American repertoire in particular had, I think, been on the upswing as people realize there's opportunities here. And, and some countries like the UK have decided it doesn't matter where the song was recorded, we'll just pay it. But other countries have not, and they've looked for ways to carve that out. So the reason for that, I think, is that a lot of countries will use the funds to fund cultural programs. And there are non-business reasons that those societies exist. If you were writing the headline, then the future of neighboring rights is? The future of neighboring rights is cloudy, but positive, a long-term positive. That's what I think. It's fuzzy, but long-term positive. We hope we've demystified some of the confusion surrounding neighboring rights. With the advancement of new technology and better reporting, the income stream for record labels and sound recording owners and the public policy environment for neighboring rights is evolving, locally nuanced, complicated, and promising. Thanks to our guests, Mary Megan Peer and Vic Zaria. The Musonomics Podcast is produced by Musonomics, LLC. Strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. Technical production this episode from Ankit Chug from the NYU Steinhardt Graduate Music Business Program. Editorial production by Joseph Vela. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>